0: Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. This is AppSATS Radio, help for partners after sexual betrayal. We talk about it here. Betrayal trauma. We are APSATS certified clinical partner specialists and coaches who have been trained to help navigate you through this crisis. There is nothing we won't talk about. Sometimes listeners want to know about triggers. dealing with the aftermath of my husband's affairs and he still works the same job that he did when he was acting out. It's a job that allows him to hide his goings on and when he stated was the previous trigger for his acting out. The whole 16 and a half years we've been together he's acted out. In the beginning what I thought it was was just pornography. Um, It ended up being, I found out two and a half years ago he had been with multiple prostitutes. I only found out a very small portion of that until about a month ago. How do you cope with all of that when you still have to deal with unavoidable triggers? Well, of course you would feel traumatized by hearing all that information. And I got to tell you, Stephanie, that's a staggered disclosure. That's finding out little bits and pieces about your husband's behavior throughout a time period, making you feel insecure, unsure, and unsafe. So what we got to do is set up a situation whereby you get with a specialist to do a formal disclosure so you can hear everything at one time in a safe environment. Oh, hi there she aka carol the coach and it is good to be with you before a holiday weekend and what i know from so many of the women that i work with is that holidays take on a whole different meaning after partner betrayal it's not like i want that for you in any way shape or form but the truth of the matter is that it seems like everything has been contaminated when you've experienced partner betrayal. And that is true. It has. But the other thing that I want you to know is that you can decide going to make these holidays a little bit different. Um, You're going to shake it up, if you will, and you're going to make it your own as opposed to putting things together to make the family happy. You know what I mean? I mean, truly, it's so important for you, and I know you don't have the energy. (laughs) I know that this has really taken the life right out of you, but it's important for you to say, okay, how can I make Memorial Day special? You know, if it's sunny, how can I have some intentional self-care? If you're in COVID but you're beginning to get out, where's somewhere that I can explore that's new and different that will be a memory for me right now? I can't tell you how many partners I talk to that that they inherently and intuitively know that they need to create new memories. And they don't want anything, nothing um, of the past, you know. And so if they always went to their swimming pool and hung out as a family and perhaps an affair partner was a neighbor, they don't want to go back and do that or maybe just having fun together um, is something that they don't want to experience in the same way because it won't feel the same because it isn't the same. You get my drift, right? So as I mentioned this holiday, I do want you to make it your own and I always want you to wrap it in some intentional self-care because that is going to help get you through this. And if you just don't have the energy or you just don't feel that you can muster up the ability to um, smile, have any hope at all, then get yourself to a partner-sensitive coach or clinician to get some help with shifting that around. Because if you don't, you'll stay isolated and you'll stay in that same Um, that same funk um, that I, I wanted to say, you know, you'll feel, you'll continue to feel morose, depressed, angry, and all those feelings are normal and natural. But if you stay stuck in them, you've got to figure out how to get out of it. This is, you know, the hardest thing uh, that you've ever been through. Now, if you're a partner who is two or three years into it, you're in a different space, and I know that. Maybe you are able to have fun. I would hope so. I would hope so, but if you're not, oh, boy, you need some therapy too. Now, I'm a therapist um, 40 years. I cannot believe I'm this old. I look at myself. I look at my energy. I go, I am not 64. I am 44. (laughs) But we know better, right? The body keeps score. We say that for betrayed partners. Well, for aging women, the body can keep score too. I'm fit as a fiddle. But I don't necessarily look as fit as a fiddle as I could. But here's what I truly believe. As women, we need to embrace, absolutely embrace where we're at in life. And, you know, I'm always saying redirect your thoughts pretty enough, then find something that is pretty about you. You know, if you don't like your body and you you see yourself as overweight, then Reframe that and call yourself voluptuous or curvy. You know, we've got to be able to accept ourselves in a positive way, and that's actually going to give us more energy to change what we prefer to change about ourselves. So is there one thing in your life that you really don't like, that you could find some some type of acceptance for. I mean, really, is there? And and you just heard me say the body, you know, I have definitely I don't know, I've just got this this body that this my skin is pretty saggy. But instead of focusing on that, I say to myself, I am strong and fit." And right now during COVID, I'm working out sometimes twice a day because I'm so bored. (laughs) And I love to exercise so much that I go, oh, what the heck? And I don't really believe I see a change at all in my body, but I know it's good for my muscles. I was reading something today that said... um, what was it talking about? It was, it was talking about the fact that when you try new things, you probably already know this, when you try new things and when you get exercise, which increases your oxygen intake, you really are able to not turn back the hands of time, but keep aging um, in proportion Heated up at all. This was uh, at the, you know, one of the things that I'm doing right now, I can't believe I'm telling you this. Um, when I broke my seven bones in November, I was told by my doctor that I needed, instead of a bone strengthener, which I was on, I needed a bone builder, which involved injections, daily injections for two years. I told them No. I told him no three times. And then I said to myself, Carol, when have you not been proactive about your health? And so I've been doing it. I've been doing it for about, well, I'm into my third month. And you have to give yourself these injections for anybody who's diabetic. I know you're sitting there going, what's the big deal, Carol? But for me, it was a big deal. And so you have to kind of just find that subcutaneous fat on your belly and use the pen and inject yourself with the bone strengthener. I'm sorry, bone builder. Now, I have to tell myself consistently, because I'm really angry that I have to take it, which I don't have to take it, but I want to take it. Well, I don't want to take it, but I need to take it. And so I have to tell myself I am so lucky that there is something that can build my bones and I have to remind myself of that, focusing on how mad I am, I get to go, no, I'm lucky. So here's why you all need to be lucky. You ready? Um, If your husbands are not being partner sensitive enough, there are two groups out there right now. That are teaching help her heal, which of course is my book on how to develop empathy in the coupleship, and we know sex addicts are not good at that. So I wanted to talk to you today about Richard Butler's book um, group. He calls it a book study, and it it started this week, but I know he would let you get in. It's from 2.30 to 4 o'clock during the day Eastern Standard Time and to contact him you can email him at richard.butler at visibleministries.com and he wanted you all to know that the men in his last group there were six as he calls them delegates group members from places like New Zealand and France and the UK and the USA. So, I mean, it's a very varied group, limited to six. How nice is that? And then you heard me have Rebecca Mastas on. You can Google her, M A E S T A S. And she's running a group for men for nine weeks, and then the women can come in and practice some of the relationship skills that I talk about. So how wonderful is that? And then I am going to be providing a Help Her Heal workshop. If you're interested, send me an email to carol at carolthecoach.com because I'm just now making up flyers for it, and um, I'm going to be doing it on a Saturday, July 18th, and I'm doing it from 10 to 1 because I'm sure I'm going to get some East Coasters that, you you know, if I do it at 9, they don't want to have to get up at 6 a.m. to attend this workshop. And we're really going to be talking about what they might need um, to understand this course better and to reinforce the relational skills that help to rebuild the coupleship. So, again, you can email me at carol, carolthecoach.com, and I would be happy to get you information. I'll get you on a waiting list and get you information. Why am I telling you all this? Because APSATS, A-P-S-A-T-S dot org, our uh, training facility and institute, wants you to have the best partner-sensitive care that you can get and want sex addicts to do whatever it takes to help you heal. Um, We're very pro-relationship, but we also know that if you decide not to be in a relationship, if you decide to end your relationship, if you already have ended your relationship, that's okay too. We really think the partner's the guide in this situation. You know, you didn't ask for this. You didn't know what was going on. And now you're in the driver's seat. And, and I love that. Uh, I love that part of it. So don't let anybody tell you you're not, right? You're in the driver's seat and you decide what needs to happen. I just did a disclosure a couple weeks ago and and she hasn't returned home since. And she says, you know, I just don't want to. I, I need separation from him. So make sure you get yourself to a partner, sensitive therapist, and you can do that by going to APSATS.org and looking for a counselor or a coach, a clinician or a coach in your area or one that just kind of looks like they offer some good services. Um, Because if you're right now, nobody has to be in the same state. Telehealth has relaxed those rules, and you can do telehealth with anybody you want. And if you have insurance and it pays for a clinician, good for you. And coaches will always have that flexibility and availability. You know, they are super important in helping you to heal because they get you to focus on you. Actually, we have Coach Andrea on um, the line, and she she has so many uh, specialized services to offer. But interestingly enough, she contacted me and she said, you know, Carol, I kind of wanted to talk about something on your show because I've noticed that that women of color, specifically African-American women, um, have specific challenges as partners in recovery, and I'd like to talk about it with you. And And if you're a woman of color out there and you've noticed those same challenges, this is a time that we can help to validate you and if you're somebody that never even thought about the challenges for women of color um, with partner betrayal and sex addiction and compulsive problematic sexual behavior, we're glad to raise the bar and get you thinking about how this may be different. So, Coach Andrea, welcome to Betrayal Recovery Radio. How are you?
1: I am good, Carol. Thank you so much for having me back on. I really appreciate just the willingness that you have to continue to engage in
0: conversations that maybe we wouldn't have elsewhere. Well, I I appreciate you, too. And I remember that I was talking to one of my clients at, uh, maybe a week after the last time I had you on, and she said, oh, I signed up for Coach Andrew's um, because I could tell she knew exactly where I was coming from. So I know our listeners are excited about resources that we have to offer, and you've already started helping some of my face-to-face clients, so I want to thank you very much, too. Um, And this is a topic that I haven't talked about on Partner Betrayal Recovery Radio. What I have done, I have talked about this issue Um, on my other show and talked about the challenges for female sex addicts that are African-Americans. Isn't that interesting?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Very much. (laughs) I did. I wasn't aware. I might have to go find that show and listen to that myself.
0: Well, and the next time I'm on, I'll go through, you know, that show actually is eight years in the making. We have over a hundred thousand listeners and i got to tell you, um, i got a lot of shows. <laughs> That's a lot of shows when you've done a, a weekly show for eight years, so I will help you look for it. But, you know, I did want to talk to you today about some of those challenges, and I know that you believe that there are different needs or even expectations around problematic sexual behavior when it, when it comes to African Americans. And tell me a little bit about what you've noticed. Well,
1: um, just from my own experience, and, and let me preface everything I'm going to say by in no way am I on your show saying that I can speak for the whole African American community. I can share from uh, my own experience. I can share from other friends I know who walked this journey, and I can share from the conversations that I've had with other people. And so as you hear me talk and I say African-Americans, I hope that everyone keeps that in mind that there's no way that I can speak for a whole race of people. Um, And then the second thing I want to say is that what I've noticed is when I try to have these conversations, people will say, oh, that's true for all partners or that's true for all and and so I'm not saying that the African-American experience is so very different from what other partners experience. What I am saying is that there are some unique factors that need to be considered, um, some generational factors. Um, we can just start with race in this country and what a hot button that is. And um, with the lack of representation that we have, for African-American counselors and therapists, um, that creates a challenge in itself, just even trying to seek out the help. So, um, you know, that's kind of like the the top of the iceberg.
0: Well, absolutely. And so obviously you picked this topic because you know that you've seen some differences. And I wanted you if you would, to share a little bit about your own experience around recovery because you're African-American. So tell me what you noticed about your own recovery as a partner. Sure. Um,
1: When I first learned about my ex-husband's infidelity, my first thought was I need to find an African-American counselor. Um, I wanted somebody who looked like me who could understand my experiences that i wouldn't have to go into a lot of qualifying or explaining you know my experience as a black woman, and that was my first indication that I was going to run into some challenges with my my recovery. The first few counselors that I did find, and then trust me when I say it was very few. Um, they did not have experience in sexual betrayal, and they were very quick to spiritualize my experience, giving me scriptures, um, referring me back to the church and kind of how we operate as a culture that we're forgiving and, and that type of thing. So I quickly realized at that point that I was probably going to have to step outside of my race to find a trained professional. And then the other thing that I noticed, which is a common stereotype for African-American women, is that I was getting this label as the angry black woman. And I know that happens to a lot of partners. You know, they're pathologized because they come in angry and they're traumatized. And that's all, they don't see the trauma. They just see the anger. But as a black woman, I really felt that I was battling this stereotype. Um, with some of the counselors. So I had to switch. And then once I found a support group, it was very obvious to me that I was not going to encounter a lot of women who look like me. And I think that, you know, safety seeking is very common for partners. We, we want to know that we're going into a safe in, environment. But there was another layer for me as an African American of not only am I safe to share this story as Um, It relates to the sexual betrayal. But am I safe as an African-American woman going into this all-white environment? And then as I've stepped into the people-helping role, and I hear stories from other African-American women, their stories sound very similar to mine. And it's disheartening to know that just because someone is a trained professional, that doesn't mean that they're not racist or have racial biases. And then one other factor I think is in battling this stereotype for me when I started considering divorce. Um, The rate for children in African American homes that are raised in single parent homes is 70%. It's huge. So for me to consider divorce meant that now I was going to be the stereotypical single mother. And that my children were going to be raised
0: in that single parent home. Oh, boy. And so, obviously, we talk about the fact that partners can carry so much pain about what's happened to them, but also can carry shame. They can carry shame because maybe they take on what was wrong with me that he had to do this before they realized that there was nothing wrong with them and that This happened solely um, because of the addict's addiction. But what I hear you saying is an African-American partner feels extra uh, responsibility for being part of those stats and, you know, not wanting to be part of the statistics, but making the choice that she also doesn't want to settle for um, unhealthy um behaviors that have caused so much distress for herself and or the family
1: that's exactly right mhm
0: okay and so you said 70% of african american um families end up in divorce
1: uh, well, 70% of African-American children are raised in single-parent homes. It may not be okay. as a result of a divorce. It could have just been that, you know, the parents weren't married, but that's the statistic is that it's 70%. Okay, got it.
0: And so obviously you had your own experience, and you realized the shame that can go along with, oh, now my kids are also going to be part of, a single family household. That's
1: right, especially when, you know, you talked about the added layer of responsibility. So I'm trying to change things generationally, that there has been this generational pattern of divorce in my family. And I'm not only trying to chart this course for my family, my, my personal family, but I do feel the burden of responsibility generationally
0: to change the narrative. And so part of you changing the narrative, since you can't change the narrative of what has happened right now, you can change the narrative of what kind of resources are available to African Americans to get them through this long-term laborious process of recovery. Uh, I mean, I I know that you were really concerned and you just shared your experience that there aren't enough African-American partner betrayal sp- specialists or sex addict specialists, correct? That is correct, yes. Mm-hmm. So I am talking with Andrea Rogers, who's a betrayal trauma survivor, and she has found that her greatest strength was actually occurred after her 19 year marriage ended, and that's a long time to be married. You almost were married two decades. She's learned half that there my are life. half their life as of today, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you actually are saying that despite the fact that this occurred in your life, despite the fact that it caused you such great pain, you're able to see that it's a blessing, a blessing in disguise, so to speak.
1: Absolutely. Um, You know, we talk about post-traumatic growth, and um, I feel like God has placed me in this space so that I can have these conversations, right? I'm I'm uniquely gifted to be able to stand up and say, here are my experiences, that I've stepped into this field of helping people where I don't see a lot of people who look like me. But I've also found um, health and growth and recovery for myself. And that when people come and say, well, does this really work? How do I know that you know this is going to work for me as a black person that I can stand up and say
0: because I I've walked this path. Yeah, and you know, I have to tell you that I find that there are it's really sad that there aren't more helping professionals even in the mental health field that are African American and I oftentimes feel like one of the ways we can offer the greatest amount of help to our clients is to get them into a community of support a community that understands the challenges they face and that does mean getting them to an african american or hispanic counselor or coach and and why do you believe that this has been so rare why do you think that, the, that there aren't more partner betrayal specialists that are african american
1: Well, I think we have to start with just the history of mental health in general in the African-American community. Um, When we look at our history, um, you know, there's been a history of racism and mistreatment in this country for African-Americans. And so historically we have been very untrusting of stepping outside of our culture to receive help. And most of the help usually came from the church not trained psychological uh, professionals. So we have to look at that first and say, how is mental health even considered in the African-American community? People have to believe that there's a success rate there and that that it's a real thing. You know, i said over and over that to be black in America is to be traumatized. And so when you start talking about Things like trauma and that you should get treatment for trauma, it's like, oh, well, then I need treatment for my whole life. And Jake Porter often says, which I love his quote, is that grief is a luxury for the brain that feels safe. So we have to start talking about just the general idea of creating safety for an African American in this country. But then secondly, when you start using terms like sex addiction or problematic sexual behavior, you are not going to hear those terms typically in an African-American com- community. So where there's skepticism around psychology as a whole or coaching as a whole, there's an even greater skepticism around this sex addiction. Like, is this a real thing? I know my thought was been, well, pretty much all the guys I know are sex addicts. Because, as I start looking at what this means, I'm like, "Well, this has been my norm, so you're you're telling me that what's been normal for me is actually problematic. And then the the third thing, which I think we don't discuss enough, is that um, if I believe in psychology and I believe in sex addiction, two things which are culturally not um, received a lot of esteem or credit in our culture, then it almost feels like another betrayal for me to step outside of my identity and uh, my culture. And one of the things that I um, was educating a colleague on is this thing called the superwoman schema. It was coined by um, Dr. Cheryl Woods Giscombe. I hope I'm not butchering her name, but she came up with this, this uh, schema that black women typically have this Superwoman persona, which says that we have to be strong. We don't, you know, we suppress our emotions, that vulnerability is weakness, and that we can succeed no matter what the circumstances are and really denying ourselves self care. So, when you look at all of that as a whole, you can understand why, one, you're not seeing a lot of African Americans step into the helping field. But number two, why you're not seeing a lot of African Americans come in for treatment?
0: Well, that makes all the sense in the world, and you know, I'm wondering on a grassroots level, what is something that a coach or a clinician can do to to change the trajectory of this to encourage. Um, counseling, and coaching educations for the African-American community. Uh, Because even if we can help African-American women learn that there are resources out there for them, what we know is that an African-American coach or clinician is inherently going to be able to offer more specialized services. So what can we do about that?
1: Well, I think starting the conversation like you're doing right now is so important. Um, Being curious and being sensitive, um, I think that what I heard across the board, so I talked to some colleagues, I talked to women who have walked through recovery, I talked to our polygraph examiner here in Houston who's done over 10,000 polygraphs. And what all of them said is that you will probably have to work harder to gain your client's trust. Clinician, it's so important to understand that that's not a personal attack on you, but that you probably represent um, a race that's been historically unsafe for us. And so um, kind of putting that on the shelf and just being curious and sensitive to maybe some unique experiences that your, your client is, is bringing, um, understanding that you may have some bias that you're unaware of. Um, and, and as you see that coming up, just being willing to check that and be honest about that. And I also think mm-hmm. consulting with colleagues, it's, it's really important that we have a, a diverse group of voices at the table as we're formulating programs and and, uh, groups and things like that, that we're not just have this um, uniform group think, but that we have a diverse representation at the table when the conversations are happening.
0: Yeah, I absolutely get that. It's it's interesting because I just had a disclosure with an African-American couple, and um, they very clearly said, we're really here to see you for the disclosure, not for counseling or coaching, mm-hmm. cause I do both, but for the disclosure. And, and I said, okay. And, you know, the disclosure can take up to two months if it's really well prepared. And, and that's what I did. And at the end, I made the assumption I forgot what they had asked for. And I made the assumption that they would want to continue to work with me. And they mm-hmm. reminded me, no, we're just here for the disclosure. We just needed the truth, you know. She said, "I just needed the truth," and now I've got the truth, and and I get to decide what I'm going to do with it. Well, the truth of the matter was, and and then we followed the polygraph. The truth of the matter was that he passed, and he did a really good job with his disclosure, and it was obvious that he really wanted to change, um, and and yet he and I both knew that, that there were some differences that we both had to be aware of. For instance, um, he came to one of the sessions. It's, it was through this COVID thing, and um, he was shirtless. You know, he just came to the session without a shirt. And I said, we'll call him Herman. I said, Herman, you have to put a shirt on when you're going to work with me. And he said, okay. And he said, I'm sorry, Carol, I walk around without a shirt, you know, 80% of the time I didn't even think about it. I said, that's fine. And his wife said, you know, she came into the room later on and she said, he told me you made him wear a shirt. And I said, I did. And she said, you know, nobody ever tells him to wear a shirt but me. And so I thought that was (laughs) really interesting that that was a definite difference that I noticed. I don't know that it was specific to the African-American community, but it was a difference compared to other men that I've worked with. I actually even wanted to ask him, but, you know, there is a, it feels, you don't want to stereotype. Um, right. I know I asked another African-American man that I'm working with who is in one of my groups, and he is he is absolutely the epitome of, what you want a sex addict in recovery to look like? He sends our group the most heartwarming, inspirational, motivational texts. He sends them uh, pictures, uh, you know, that motivate. You've seen, you know, I, they're just amazing. But when I was talking to him last, I said to him, "Well, he actually has five different children from five different mothers." And I was nervous to talk to him about that situation, and I thought to myself, would an African-American counselor be nervous, or would she just make an assumption? Because that is an assumption, that maybe in the African-American community, fathers, baby mamas, you know? So I finally said something to him, and I said, I said a couple things. One is that he had had um, difficulty with one of the mothers that he had uh, was talking to and she just let him have it and uh, really said some, uh, she really used strong language. And I said, now, is that an African-American thing? Or is that just that you get these women so riled up, they just let loose on you? And he said, I don't think it's an African American thing. And then, Coach Andrea, I felt horrible because I asked him that question. Again, if I were African American, maybe that I wouldn't have felt horrible. So they're all I. What I guess what I'm trying to say is, in in checking out somebody's community, somebody's experience, somebody's lifestyle, it can feel like stereotyping has already occurred. And, you know, the last thing I want to do as a clinician is I want to be able to be culturally sensitive, but I don't want to stereotype. You know what I mean?
1: Right. And, and yeah, and I think that that's a common frustration even for clients is they feel like they have to spend part of their session educating the, the clinician. It's like I'm right. here for help but I have to stop my process of receiving help in order to educate you on how to help me. And so, um, you know, that's when you get into where people are like, no, I want someone who looks like me, where I don't have to do all of this qualification and education and explanation. Now, like I said, even me being African American, I have to check my own bias. I have to check my own stereotypes. Um, but when I get around a group of African-American uh, partners, there's almost a different layer of safety that they feel, a different layer of relaxation, because they don't have to explain to me some of the things that are unique to our culture. And and that's just the reality is that if I choose a clinician or a coach That is not African American, I'm probably going to have to spend part
0: of my session explaining or educating. And so I would assume, and I'm making the assumption right this minute, that if I were to get an African American client and I felt like they could really benefit from coaching services, it would be a no brainer to refer them to you because. That would give them the the biggest bang for their buck and um, would leave them more time for their own issues in a session. Maybe. Um, You know, again, I think that's
1: where being curious is always good because if you are curious, you're going to ask the question and not make the assumption. Um, I don't assume that just because I'm African-American I can work with Uh, every African-American client. My client, my my personal counselor is a white female and um, she and I have worked together really well. She has stayed curious every time. Um, EMDR, uh, this is another thing that I didn't bring up, but many of the african Americans EMDR has not been successful. And for me, it was a long time before I even saw just a little bit of progress. And so instead of making assumptions, she was curious, and she asked me, like, why? Like, what is this? And we did have some conversations outside of my session that helped to benefit in the session. So um, I would say to just always be curious and ask the questions
0: before you make the assumptions. That's very good advice. Now, just for our listening audience, I want to let everybody know that I'm talking to Coach Andrea Rogers, and she is a betrayal trauma survivor, and she is a coach. She's a board-certified life coach, and she's a certified partner coach candidate that practices the APSATS trauma model. And if you like what she's saying, you can find her at her website, which is, is it Uh
1: No, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and
0: YouTube at Fully Alive Coaching. Fully Alive Coaching. And you can also email her at f a c, at gmail.com. And um, one of the things that I know about her is that she's a fierce warrior for Jesus, And she really is passionate about helping hurting partners work through their pain. And are you still running your divorce group?
1: I am. We are in week seven of eight. Um, Later tonight is week seven, and it is going really well. I'm excited about uh, making this a regular part of my Um, business is offering this group to um, women who are separated or divorced.
0: So I made an assumption, and you you basically said, you know, Carol, probably need to check that out. My assumption was that if I've got African-American clients and I need to make a referral, that you would be a good person to refer to because you may know more about The specific community than I do. Can can you tell me how do you think that we can start dialogue with members of the African American community about this issue? Because, I mean, you bring up some great issues. How can we work together to do that? Obviously, this podcast is one, but what are some other ways?
1: Right. Um, I think also just Um, continuing the dialogue. So one of the things that I've noticed is that uh, people function that because they have one black friend, or they have dated a black person, or there's a black person in their family, that that means that they understand black culture. And that's Mm -hmm. not true. And so I think that um, taking the initiative to educate yourself as a, if you want to be effective as a clinician or a coach and you know that you want to be able to relate to your partners where they are, I think that educating yourself would be the first step. And then outside of that, I would say find people that you can continue the dialogue with. Um, stay curious when you're making decisions. One of the things that um, I talked to another African American woman who's been leading groups for ten years, and we discussed how some of the material, the recovery material, is not culturally sensitive, and how we've had to address that in our groups. But if if there's no one that looks like us at the table as these materials are being developed, then of course um, that's always going to come into play. So I think that educating yourself continuing the dialogue, um, being open, and and also just understanding that there's an ignorance there. I think that ignorance has gotten a bad rap as a bad word, but it simply means just not knowing. And so when I'm aware that I'm ignorant in an area, the first thing that I do is try to educate myself or find someone who can educate me. So it's, it's finding partners. Um, to come alongside in this journey, having more dialogue, more research, and more inclusion at the table.
0: Well, those are all great points. And so you had referenced earlier in the show that, you know, one of the things that that you may not hear an African-American asking about is problematic sexual behavior. That's just not in their bandwidth. Can you reference what you were, what you just meant when you said the language is not always African American sensitive? I mean, you didn't say that, but we're talking about partner sensitivity here and sex addiction. Mm-hmm. And so, tell me what some of those things are, so I can pass that around and along. Sure. Um, so, when I said problematic
1: sexual behavior, I mean, if I look back at my childhood, if I talk to the other Um, African-American partners that I know, what we would call problematic sexual behavior is called normal. And so to tell someone that they're normal is really not normal and that it's also unhealthy, um, you can understand how that would put someone on the defense. And so having a conversation around, I can recognize that you may have seen this a lot growing up but here's really what a healthy relationship looks like. That sounds very different than, no, this is problematic sexual behavior and um, that it's dysfunctional. Because now you're not only talking about me, but it feels like you're talking about a whole race of people who have accepted this as as the norm. And then the other thing um, that I noticed, Pretty often is when I'm looking at work around boundaries and the language of setting boundaries, if I don't speak a certain way, like if if the way I engage with people in my community sounds very different than how you talk when you engage with people in your community and you're talking to me about setting boundaries, but you're using language that I would never use then I'm very confused on how to be clear on what my boundaries would be. And so uh, working through groups and like I said, talking to um, the other lady who's led groups for 10 years, she said that she kind of noticed the same thing. And so I think there just really needs to be an increased awareness and more than anything, like I said, some inclusion at the table as we're developing materials that are gonna help partners heal.
0: Absolutely. Great point. So now we're getting close to the end of this podcast. And I'm I'm wondering, I think you've shared some, some of it, but what are you hoping will happen after this podcast? What would you like to see? I'm really hoping
1: that I have piqued somebody's interest to say, hmm, I never thought about that. And so I'm hoping that I have open people's minds to a different experience and help to create some awareness. And I hope that it doesn't just stop with this conversation, that people wouldn't say, oh, I heard this one African-American lady say, but that they would be curious and interested enough to continue the dialogue, to do more research. And ultimately, I want us to be passionate about making sure we're reaching all populations of people. I mean, we know that our recovery community is not reflective of the people who need help. Uh, And so just making sure that we all have that concern that we want to see as many people as possible getting the help that they need.
0: Well, absolutely. And one of the things I hope um, is that, Maybe you can come join us someday on the APSATS board and keep us aware of what we can be doing as an organization and as an institute to really promote the changes that you and I both think are are necessary in this world. So, Coach Andrea, I'm offering you an invitation in the future to be part of our organization (laughs) so you can help are you laughing at me <laughs> you know with awareness and and made you know i it wasn't it maya angela that says when you know better you do better
1: yes that is exactly what she said
0: <laughs> that's what i thought okay so thank you so much for talking about this today and you know continue success with all the work you're doing and um Hope you have a good Memorial Day weekend.
1: Thank you, Carol. I appreciate you so much for having the courage to have this conversation and um I'm excited about what the future holds.
0: Well, you know the only courage it takes is admitting when I am confused, uncertain or unclear and that is courage to actually do that. So I appreciate having a safe person like you to do that with. Thank you. All right, have a good day. Thank you. All right. So again, that's Coach Andrea. And she is amazing. She has a business called Fully Alive Coaching. You can reach her at Coach Andrea, and that's A N D R E A F A C at Gmail dot com. And so I will leave it there. Um I'll keep you posted on our workshops and other opportunities to heal. And thanks so much for listening to the show. I'll see you next week for more Betrayal Recovery Radio here at APSAS. You know, a partner-sensitive group that... Wants you to heal. For more information, go to org, the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists, to find a professional in your area who is trained to help you after sexual betrayal. That is a mouthful, but we do our best.